0: Acts chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16, and to bring you up to speed while you find Acts chapter 7, chapter 6 closed out, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, with the whole council, the Sanhedrin, gazing upon Stephen. He'd been accused of blaspheming God by speaking against the temple and speaking against the law of God. But instead of immediately responding to these charges, Stephen simply stands firm. And what is observed by his accusers is the fact that he's a man who lives his life in the presence of God. How do we know that? Well, because the last verse of chapter 6 says, They saw his face like the face of an angel. So now we're turning to Stephen's response, and we'll consider this morning the first section of his defense that takes up all of chapter 7. Allow me to read verses 1 through 16, Acts chapter 7. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob to his father, Jacob his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb, which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. This is the word of the Lord. Stephen's speech, or sermon, if you want to look at it that way, it'll take up most of chapter 7, and it can be broken down into four sections, so let me go over those briefly just to give us kind of an aerial view of this chapter. Each section that Stephen talks about deals with a major character and the age in Israel's history that each of those characters represented. So four characters, four ages. The first major character is Abraham. And we find his story beginning in Genesis chapter 12. He represents the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The second major character Stephen emphasizes is Joseph. His story begins in Genesis chapter 37. It goes to the end of Genesis. Joseph's experiences explain to us how the small Hebrew nation ended up in Egypt. And we'll look at Abraham and Joseph today. The next major character is Moses. And we didn't read about that this morning in our text, but it's coming up. We find the story of Moses' early life in the book of Exodus. And of course, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And finally, Stephen will mention David, Israel's most significant king. And he represented, David represented the establishing of the monarchy in Israel. So this speech is basically a history lesson, but it's more than that. It's a summary of the Old Testament. But it is more than just a retelling. Because every single person that was listening to Stephen knew their history. They cherished their history. And they didn't need to be told what they already knew. That's not what Stephen is doing here. So why would he launch into a history lesson for a defense? Because that's what he's doing is defending himself before these 70-plus men representing the Sanhedrin. And though he's been called to give a defense... He really doesn't do that. Instead, he he forgets about himself, basically, and uses this as an opportunity to teach about true worship. The Jewish leaders, they had made worship into something that God never intended it to be. And Stephen had been falsely accused. But if the accusations that were heaped upon him are believed, he's in serious trouble because blasphemy is a capital offense. In the Old Testament. And this council of of Jewish leaders, they might not have the legal authority under Rome to actually put Stephen to death, but that doesn't mean they would not try. But Stephen's concern at this moment is not about himself. It's about the truth going forth. And so as we'll see, what he does is he tries to get his hearers to hear the same story with fresh ears. He wants them to recognize what has been there all along. What has stared them in the face from their own scriptures, the Old Testament, what they'd completely missed. And of course, we sometimes need that as well. The idea that, that Stephen puts forth with Abraham and Joseph is this: you cannot limit God. You cannot limit God. You cannot limit God's activity to a certain place. You cannot limit God to a certain way of moving. You cannot even limit him to a certain people group, as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts. You cannot limit God to only working in a certain time. And so this idea is going to unfold as we go along. But I want you to tuck that away. I want you to keep that in mind. You cannot limit God. And I want you to ask yourself, in what ways do I limit him? Where do I insist that that God stay in my life? What box Do I put him into? How do I think that God should move in my life? Think about those things. Verse 1, the high priest asked Stephen, Are these things so? What things? Well, it's the things that Stephen had been accused of. Disparaging the temple, disparaging the law of God. And what Stephen does is he follows an ancient rhetorical or public speaking practice when he gives his speech. He doesn't respond directly to the question. You probably got that as I was reading the text this morning. But what he does is he seeks to make this emotional and this logical connection with his audience. He wants to connect with them. And so he begins with something that they are familiar with, which is their own history. And it's not until the end of his speech that he actually makes his point. Everything before that is preparation. It's field work. It's like planting a garden. The harvest part of planting is actually fairly short. Most of your work goes into clearing the land and tilling the soil and planting the seed and cultivating. This is field work here, but it's very instructive, and it's not only good to know our destination, it's helpful to understand how we get there, and so we're beginning that journey this morning with Stephen, and our first example is Abraham, verses 2 through 8 we see that Abraham is called, Abraham called by God. Now, Abraham, he was born about 300 years after the flood, the flood that covered the entire earth. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever sat down and and tried to trace out the generations in Genesis and, and put together the chronology there? It's not very long that Abraham was born, 300 years after the flood. In fact, Noah, who lived much longer than Abraham, Noah lived 950 years, He died during Abraham's father's lifetime. So Abraham's father would have been alive when Noah was still alive, just to give you some perspective here. And the flood, of course, had completely wiped out the human race, except for eight people. By the law of of exponential population growth for you math people out there, and the fact that that somebody like Noah had a much longer lifespan pre-flood, the earth had been repopulated by the time that Abraham was born. And we can understand that in one way because you think about our nation is just a little over 250 years old and think about the population in 1776 versus 2021. There's quite a difference. There's been quite a population growth. But the knowledge of the true God by Abraham's time had been largely lost. And so we're told by Stephen in reference to this call of Abraham in Genesis 12, that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, you don't have to look. You can take my word for it. Genesis 12 does not say that God appeared to Abraham. What it says is that he spoke to Abraham. And that means that Stephen is giving us some added insight here in Acts chapter 7. And he doesn't say, Stephen doesn't say what that appearance looked like. Could very well have been a manifestation of God's presence Quite apart from Stephen actually, or I'm sorry, Abraham actually seeing anything, but we do know for sure from scripture that Abraham heard God speak. And one of the things that God said was this leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And we do know that somehow God made his presence known to Abraham. Now keep in mind, Abraham grew up in a thoroughly pagan culture. There's been a lot of studies on ancient Mesopotamia. They they know the idols that were worshipped there. They know the multiple gods that were worshipped, the the temples that were in place. In Abraham's society, uh, the primary god at the time being the moon god, the moon in the sky was worshipped in that area of the world. And so we don't see Abraham searching for God. What we see is God searching for Abraham. God's the initiator. God is the one who chose to reveal himself. And Abraham had never heard God speak as far as we know, though I'm sure he had heard some accounts of the great flood that had only taken place 300 years earlier, Some, some myths and some legends that had been born out of that. But the point is that a relatively unknown God told Abraham to leave everything and go somewhere that he had never been and live there. That's a big deal, especially at this time when all travel was done by foot or on a donkey, and that's a long way from Mesopotamia to, to Canaan. And this took tremendous willingness on Abraham's part to trust that the God behind this voice that he heard is something he should follow. And it's instructive that Stephen, when he's retelling this, uses the phrase, God of glory. Genesis doesn't use that phrase. It's Stephen's own wording, and it's important. I mentioned, if you can think back to last Sunday, when we looked at Psalm 29. That when the Bible says that God is holy, holiness is who God is. Holiness is his essence. It is his very nature. But when God chooses to reveal himself, what me and you experience is his glory. You say, so what's the difference? Well, you don't directly experience the holiness of God any more than you directly experience the Son. But you do experience the rays of the sun. That's what reaches to us. In the same way, you are made aware of God through his glory, through the expression, the manifestation of his holiness. So simply put, God revealed himself to Abraham. Abraham was made aware of the glory of God, and he knew in an instant that this God was different than the gods of the people that were around him. Something was different. This God was set apart. He was unique. He was supremely powerful. And Abraham had very little to go on except that voice, that manifestation that he had seen and heard somehow. But he received a glimpse of God's glory, and he was willing to follow. He knew that God was worthy to follow even into the complete unknown. And he knew that God was worth losing everything, in order to gain that glory that he had tasted. And Abraham wanted more. He believed this God was faithful, good, and awesome in power. And however, though, Abraham is the father of faith. That's probably the the term you're familiar with when it comes to Abraham. Giving us the example of what it looks like for an average man to trust an awesome God that's what Abraham did. That is not exactly what Stephen is choosing to focus on. What I mean by that is in most of the rest of the New Testament, when Abraham is referenced, it's almost always a reference to his faith. And that is in the background here. But Stephen's pre- uh, presenting this very familiar figure to this Jewish audience, and he calls Abraham our father but not for the reasons that his audience would expect. Because these prominent, these influential men that are sitting on this council, that are listening to him, they would expect Stephen to talk about how special they all were because they were descendants of Abraham. But Stephen doesn't do that. Instead, he talks about how special the God is who revealed his glory to Abraham. God led Abraham to Canaan. And that's the land that he would give to Israel to possess centuries in the future. Verse 4 says, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. So Stephen reminds his accusers that the reason that they even live in Israel, the reason they're sitting in the city of Jerusalem right now, the reason they call it home is because God promised the land to Abraham and to his descendants. And God fulfilled his promise. So you can picture all these heads nodding all around the room. Yeah, yeah, we agree with that. We're living that promise out. Yet for Abraham himself, within his own lifetime, we're told in verse 5, but God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. So there it is. Stephen has planted the first seed. He has He has subtly introduced his theme. Abraham never actually owned any property in Canaan, except except for the cave where he buried his wife, Sarah. And that's amazing. God promised Abraham all of it, and Abraham believed that it all belonged to him. But he never held more than one small deed. He never lived in a permanent dwelling in Canaan. He was never recognized in his life as anyone other than a stranger to all the people around him who lived in the cities that dotted the landscape. Not even a foot of ground belonged to Abraham. The council that Stephen is standing before, they took so much pride in their heritage and the fact that the land they lived in was given to them by God himself. Yet the first Hebrew, the father of Israel, did not even own a foot of ground in that land. And so what then did Abraham possess? Well, he possessed the God of glory because the God of glory possessed him. It says even when he had no child, this is verse five, that is no descendant to start the line of people who would populate the land. God promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So everything that Abraham possessed, he possessed in the form of a promise. Can't see a promise. Can't touch a promise. You can't feel a promise. But it's there. And here's what Stephen was, was delicately hinting at. The land, it means nothing without the God who gave the land. The law, it means nothing without the true knowledge of the lawgiver. The temple, it's just an empty building if the presence of God is not among you. Abraham didn't have the temple. Abraham didn't have the law. That would come 400 years later with Moses. Abraham didn't even possess the land except by faith. And if he had verbalized to anyone that he actually owned this land where a bunch of other folks were living Because some unknown God had given it to him, they would have laughed him right out of there. What Abraham did have was a God who had appeared to him, and God was with him wherever he went. God is not bound by a place, and God is not limited by space or even time. We need to be reminded of that this morning. God was with Abraham, guiding him, protecting him, working out his purposes through him. And all because Abraham simply chose to believe what was unseen. And this is what we as a church desperately need to recover. Especially as we're moving into a time that we're all sensing where the church in America is becoming more and more marginalized. Marginalized. Becoming more and more of something that society does not look with favor upon. In some cases, only tolerates. In other cases, even is beginning to turn against. We are strangers in this world, just as much wanderers as Abraham. We get so entangled in our worries, in our possessions. In our debts and our deeds and our political concerns and our earthly affairs, do we miss the fact that God never promised to give us this world? He promised to give us the one to come. And that doesn't mean that we reject possessions. That doesn't mean that we ignore what's going on politically. It doesn't mean that we, we move into a monastery and become monks or a convent and become nuns. It means that we don't miss the view of heaven for earth. It means that we recognize that we're that we're passing through and we have yet to see the lasting home that's being prepared for us. God's not bound to a certain place or a certain people or a certain idea. God is bound to his own character and to his own promises. And when you when you line up in faith with the revealed truth of, of God's word, he works in your life to fulfill his purposes. One preacher said it this way, very simply, I like it, about this passage. He said, God is on the move. God is on the move. He was on the move in Abraham's day, and he's on the move today. God has never been and will never be tied down. And he beckons you and he beckons me to make him our possession and to follow him where he goes. Because we all know that our possessions, they can tie us down we're not careful. But if God is your possession, then where he goes, you're willing to follow. And the moment that you recognize that God does not necessarily stay where you want him to stay is the moment that you're free to follow him. Abraham was called by God. And now we turn to Joseph, verses 9 through 16. We see that Joseph is comforted. By God, Abraham is called. Joseph is comforted. Verses nine through sixteen. Stephen is transitioning here from Abraham to Joseph, and in making that transition, we're reminded that God also spoke to Abraham again in Genesis fifteen. This is what Stephen quotes in verses six through seven. Stephen reminds the council that that God told Abraham his descendants would live in a foreign land for four hundred years. They will be strangers there. They will be enslaved. And this foreign land is, of course, Egypt. And the story of Joseph tells us how the the 75 descendants of Abraham ended up in Egypt. But to get us from Abraham to Joseph, in verse 8, Stephen speaks of the covenant of circumcision. And I think you're all aware that that that's a very physical sign. And it was given initially to Abraham. Abraham. And it represents the promise that God made to him. Every Jewish man who gets circumcised, even to this day, remembers that God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants in order to have a unique relationship with them. It's a much more common practice today than it was in ancient Mesopotamia. It was almost unheard of then. But because it was so different, it set apart the Jewish people from the cultures that were around them. Now, there's a lot of deeper meaning in in the practice of circumcision as far as Scripture is concerned, but for Stephen's purposes, he's simply acknowledging that God's promises for Israel are represented by a physical sign in the flesh every time a Jewish boy is circumcised. So Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, Isaac circumcised his son Jacob, and Jacob had his 12 sons circumcised, from whom the 12 tribes of Israel would descend. Are you still with me? Made it over that bridge there. So like Abraham, Stephen's choice to use Joseph as the next example is very intentional. This is not an accident. Stephen knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. And we need to catch the connection here. Joseph grew up in Canaan alongside of his 11 brothers. If you're familiar with the story, probably more familiar with it than many other stories in the Old Testament. begins in Genesis 37. And in verse 9 of Acts 7, what we're looking at, Stephen says, The patriarchs, that's Joseph's brothers, became jealous of Joseph. And you know that was because of the the incident with the the, um, coat of many colors. Because Jacob favored Joseph, and so the brothers sold him into Egypt. And Joseph becomes a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar, a rich man, an influential man. And the Lord blesses the work of Joseph's hands so that he moves up in the servant's ranks. He becomes basically only second under Potiphar in the household, has a lot of authority and responsibility. But then he's falsely accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife. And after being in prison for many years, seemingly forgotten, God arranges that Joseph interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Verse 10, Acts 7. God rescued Joseph from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Joseph went from slave to prisoner to the palace. And here's the key. It's found in verse 9. Yet God was with him. What a phrase. Everyone else forgot Joseph. His father thought he was dead. His brothers thought they would never see him again. He languished for many years, at least seven, maybe up to 12 years, in an Egyptian prison with no assurance that he would ever be free, that he would ever see his family again, that he would ever have a chance of having a family of his own. Yet God was with him. So I wonder who here this morning needs to hear that. Maybe you feel forgotten. Maybe you feel all alone. Maybe you feel like no one cares. Maybe you feel like no one would even notice if you didn't show up for work tomorrow. Maybe you feel like all of your hopes and your dreams, those things that you were so sure that God himself laid on your heart, have come to nothing. Maybe it feels like it's just one disappointment after another. That's very much what Joseph would have been tempted to feel. Forgotten, forsaken, abandoned by everyone, everybody. Yet God was with him. Understand this God was not stuck in Canaan. He went down to Egypt with Joseph, he went to prison with Joseph, he was there. God was present in Joseph's suffering. Back to the council, these ruling Jews that Stephen is speaking to, they had so much pride in the land God had given them that they forgot that the God who gave them the land was not limited to it. God called Abraham from outside Canaan and led him into it. God was with Joseph when he was forced away from the land, cruelly sold as a slave. God loved the land that he gave to his people but he is not a God that is bound to a place. He is a God that binds himself to people. And that's the point Stephen is making. God granted Joseph favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It took many years, probably close to 14. Joseph was 17 when he was sold as a slave. He was 30, around about 30 when he became second only to Pharaoh, many years before he was vindicated, before he was exalted. But God was with him. And all those long years of suffering and wandering and loneliness, they were for a purpose. And that purpose was much bigger than Joseph. And God's purpose for your suffering and your wandering and your loneliness is much bigger than you. The God who is limitless has reasons that that we often cannot comprehend for why he's doing what he's doing in our lives. Verse 11, now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. Stephen reminds the council, our fathers, our ancestors, Joseph's father and brothers, suffered greatly because of the famine that fell across not only Canaan, but most of the known world. Even on Egypt, they were suffering the famine as well. Good thing God is not bound to a particular place. Because in the meantime, Joseph in his new administrative position, what's he been doing? Remember the story? Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, he's been storing up grain. The famine is is upon the land. And it says in verse 12, when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers, that's Jacob's sons, There to Egypt the first time. So, summing up the account, like I'm doing now, Stephen notes that it was on the second visit to Egypt that Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers. Now, keep in mind, once again, those listening to this story, they knew it very, very well. Stephen was not telling them something they hadn't heard before. He's trying to get them to hear it in a new way, from a different perspective. It's like when you're reading the Bible. I hope you're reading the Bible. And you read a, a passage that you've read a hundred times before, but all of a sudden you've seen something that you've never seen there before. And it just is driven home with piercing relevance into your life and into your heart. What's happening? Well, the Holy Spirit's opening your eyes to see it in a different light. He's giving you new perspective. It was God's plan all along. From the day that Joseph was sold as a slave and taken to Egypt, that the 75 people who represented the nation of Israel at that time in history, that they end up in Egypt. That was God's plan. So think about that. It was God's plan, and this is something that was easy to miss by those members of the Sanhedrin, the council, staring down Stephen. The God of Israel, who they so closely associated with the promised land, with Canaan, and the temple in Jerusalem, was also the God of Mesopotamia. Was also the God of Egypt. He's the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. And so that means he's the Lord of every place and every nation, whether the people living there recognize that fact or not. So Stephen continues Pharaoh heard about Joseph's family and invited them all to settle in Egypt. So Jacob left the land given to his grandfather Abraham, went to live in Egypt, and there he died. In fact, Jacob's descendants would stay in Egypt for over 400 years. Just like God, remember, told Abraham what happened. And in the meantime, the Israelites in Egypt, they're multiplying greatly. 400 years is a long time in which to grow a nation, especially when God is, is blessing the procreation So this nation of people, God's chosen people, they were aliens in a foreign land, enslaved and mistreated. And like Joseph before them, the Israelites, they felt abandoned and they felt alone. Yet God was with them. God heard their cries. God was not stuck back in Canaan. He's not a local God. He's the God of the entire earth. And in his time, he would bring his people back to the land that he promised Abraham but that would yet be another 400 years. You think you've been waiting for a long time. God did not forget the Israelites in their waiting. And He's not forgotten you and yours either, whatever that might look like for you. In fact, because God is not limited by one place, and he's not limited by one people, and he's not even limited by time, he's able to take All of the disorienting circumstances, all of the confusing suffering, all of the long waiting, and use them to accomplish his purposes. His purposes include you, and they include me, but they are also much bigger than you, and much bigger than me. In this section of Stephen's speech, it concludes with an interesting verse verse 16. From there, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. What's going on there? Well, you see, after Jacob died, Joseph made the journey from Egypt to Canaan with the body of his father in order to bury his father in the tomb of his grandfather, Abraham. And this cave and the plot of land around it, remember, was the only land that Abraham ever owned. So his bones, Abraham's bones, and Jacob's bones testify to the fact that one day God would lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and they would possess the whole land. God is on the move. He's going before you. He's coming behind you. In this life, you might only own an acre, but God owns everything. And what belongs to him also belongs to his children. Listen to how the Apostle Paul expresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For all things belong to you, whether the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now that doesn't mean that you can go claim someone else's property or possessions. It's not what that's saying. What that means is that since God owns everything, He's able to meet your needs wherever you find yourself. So, God called a man named Abraham, gave him a land. Abraham never actually possessed the land, but his descendants eventually filled that land. God took Joseph away from that land and eventually prepared for his brothers to follow. And it wouldn't be until 400 years after Joseph's death that God would bring his people back to the land. Are you confused? We're good. From the experiences of these two men alone, Abraham and Joseph, two of the most revered men in Jewish history, Stephen pointed out a fact that those sitting on the council falsely accusing him, a fact they missed. God is not stationary. God is not bound to a place. He is on the move with his people. So like Abraham was called and Joseph was comforted, you are also called and comforted. What this means for us is that God is on the move in our lives. He is not still. Though he may be quiet, as I've said before, God's silence is not God's absence. When God is moving quietly in your life, he's still on the move. We know that God's not bound to one place. We know it this way. One thing that we observe about Jesus' ministry is that he was on the move. He was always going to new places. He was always confronting new people. He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in different towns and cities. The Spirit of God guided the steps of Jesus, and Jesus obeyed perfectly. But there was a day when all of that activity came to a halt. And for three hours in the middle of that day, darkness fell over Jerusalem, that same city where Stephen is testifying before the Sanhedrin. There was Jesus suffering, gasping for air, hanging on a cross in physical agony. Every breath as he's trying to pull his chest up and expand his diaphragm with his arms nailed to that beam, his wrist nailed to the cross, every breath sending shockwaves of pain through his body. But the physical pain was, was only a part of it. The most suffocating anguish was the spiritual pain. And that's why Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's what he said before he took his last breath. And Why did he say that? Well, because the Father turned away from the Son. At that moment, Jesus became sin for you and for me, and God, the Father, separated himself from Jesus. For the only time in eternity, the fellowship of the Trinity was broken. Jesus experienced spiritual separation. He suffered hell Jesus knew what it was. He knows what it is from that experience to be abandoned, to be cut off, to be the receiver of the entire weight and force of the wrath of God. The judgment of God against sin fell upon Jesus so that judgment does not have to fall on you. The very person who followed God perfectly who always and only moved when the Father said to move. He died a death he didn't deserve, and he was punished for sins that he didn't commit. Because Jesus did not stay dead but rose from the dead, God credits his perfect life to all who call upon his name in faith. You have a responsibility. God has done what he could do. And now how will you respond to that? God's willing to credit the life and the obedience and the perfection of Jesus to you. Because Jesus died to take away the sin and the rebellion and the imperfection and all the things in your life that don't measure up to God's standard. Because Jesus took that upon himself, became sin in your place. God is willing to credit the perfect standing of Jesus to your account before him. And so that all that is true about Jesus becomes true about you. But there is a condition you have to call upon his name. Call upon the name of Jesus in faith. And when you do that, you receive forgiveness. And you receive a new heart that longs to obey God, even as Jesus did. The Holy Spirit's been sent. It dwelled inside of Stephen. He dwelled inside of Stephen. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of every Christian who's placed his or her trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And it's not about the things that you will do. It's about the things that Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, will do through you. Jesus Christ, whose ministry, when he was on earth, was limited to one place, is no longer limited. The cross and the resurrection mean that he sends his spirit to his people wherever they find themselves. God's not bound to a place. And your final home is not here. Like Abraham left his home in Mesopotamia, Jesus followed God's call and left his home in heaven. Jesus became a stranger in a world that was not his ultimate home. And like Joseph suffered false imprisonment, Jesus suffered for sins he did not commit. And because Jesus suffered death as a stranger in a strange land, because of that, for that reason, your final destination, a destination if you are a Christian, is heaven. Jesus left the glory of his Father so that you can one day enter into the glory of the Father. So for now, you're not worried when God leads you somewhere that doesn't make any sense. You don't despair when God allows you to pass through suffering. If this life, if this life is all that there is, you die, game over. If this is all that there is, then the trials and the tribulations, they're pointless. They really are. However, we know the trials, the tribulations, they're not pointless. They were not pointless for Abraham or for Joseph. And if you realize that you're a stranger and this is not your home, then it doesn't matter where God leads you because you know that he's with you. God is not limited to a place. He inhabits his people. And where his people go, he goes with them. And where God goes, his people follow. Let's pray. Father, I know that I needed to be reminded this morning that you are not a God that's bound by place or space or time. You're not bound by my expectations or my doubts. Lord, you are limitless in what you're able to do, and you simply call us to trust you. So help us to step out in faith like Abraham and like Joseph and to recognize that the trials and the tribulations and the sufferings are for a purpose and that you're finishing what you have begun. Lord, as we go throughout this next week, may we realize that yes, we've been given many blessings and much to enjoy in this life. This is not our home. So help us set our sights on the home to come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.